are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing specifically today, an essay entitled It's Catching by David Sedaris, which is in his collection, When You Are Engulfed in Flames. I wanted to do more essays from When You're Engulfed in Flames for a little while now, actually three weeks ago, but then I decided to do the Randy Hendricks stories, and then I had Chris on the podcast, so we've had a, a bit of delay in my planning, so I've had this book in my office for the past few weeks just sitting there, and it's actually my first Sedaris book, so it has some sentimental value to me. Before we get into the essay, there are some things I want to talk about per usual I saw The Flash last night, and I had been looking forward to it for a long time. Not for Ezra Miller, but because, for one thing, I love the DC film franchise, and I really wanted to see Michael Keaton as Batman again. And by the way, Supergirl in this movie was way better than Superman in Man of Steel. I... Do not like Man of Steel at all. I like Batman vs. Superman and the Justice League movies and all the other DC movies. I like Aquaman and uh, Birds of Prey and the Suicide Squad movies, but I did not like Man of Steel. And part of it is because of Michael Shannon. And what's funny to me is that now, anytime you Google anything related to the movie or Michael Shannon... Uh, it it pops up that he didn't like being in the movie or something like that. And by the way, he's in the movie for a very short amount of time. He's not the main antagonist. Uh, that may be a spoiler, but I won't spoil anything else. Uh, it was great to see Batfleck one final time. Great to see Gal Gadot. Uh, the special guest uh, near the end of the film was a fun callback to the 90s Batman movies. And of course, there was a scene where we see a bunch of characters from DC films past. So if you haven't seen the film, it's very rewarding. It's a film that is beyond just Ezra Miller and everything going on with him. It's just a fantastic movie and I recommend you see it. In the past, I've read Zev Good's writing, and I've really enjoyed his Substack. I've been thinking about posting on Substack again, but again, I have the podcast. But he posted something that was entitled, Rainbows are Visions, but Only Illusions. And I really recommend you go read it. I don't want to read the full thing on the podcast. But essentially... He's talking about his experience as a gay man in the LGBTQ community, which he says is not really a community. And I find that anytime that people try to lump everyone together in the same group, usually don't have positive results. Now, for political reasons and social justice reasons, absolutely, there should be an LGBTQ community. And I don't speak for anyone in that community, but hearing his perspective on things was very enlightening. And I mean, I knew it, was, it wasn't all sunshine and roses and that not everyone was accepting of one another. Not everyone was kind to, to one another just because of their sexuality, obviously. I've lived most of my life 
kind of alienated from groups of people. And the pandemic has made me even more withdrawn. So I work from home and I interact with people from work within the confines of my eight-hour shifts. But there are days when I don't talk to anybody aside from my wife. My wife has been talking to me lately about reconnecting with my family and I don't want to do it. But she wants me to because she wants to be part of a family. And, you know, I'm close to my mother and we see my mother at least once a week. But I I don't feel like I'm part of that family. And on top of that, I don't feel connected when I'm in a house full of people who get together once or twice a year and they just tolerate one another. I find it very easy to be alone because, I mean, that's what I'm used to. The only time I've ever been part of uh, a group that really connected that didn't end on bad terms was when I was younger and I was involved in sports. You know, this is one of those situations where you're you're kind of forced to all be friends in some sense, especially when you're younger. I mean, I was on the wrestling team for the rec department for three years, I want to say, from second to fourth grade. And, of course, I didn't ever really enjoy wrestling. What I enjoyed was being able to talk to other kids after school. I loved wrestling camp when I went Stuff like that. Wrestling, the sport itself, was not for me. I didn't like football. I enjoyed baseball, but my mother didn't want me to play once they were using real pitchers for some reason. I guess I sucked that badly. But after that, I wasn't involved in anything after the fourth grade with other kids after school until um, sometimes banned, but... uh, there was, I was in drama in high school, but I didn't get along with a lot of those kids. I haven't been doing much writing lately, if any at all. I haven't been doing much reading lately, other than my coursework. Uh, I'm currently studying for something related to my current current career, and it's just a uh, like a four to six month course. It ends in November, and I started it in May. But it's self-paced, and at the end, I take a test, I get a certificate, I can start applying for higher-paying positions. La-di-da. I can't say it's something that I enjoy doing, though. That's the thing. When I was in college, I enjoyed my literature courses. Of course, I was very hesitant to what it actually meant to be an English major. I thought it would be something much different when I signed up for it, and I ended up learning to love it. Obviously, I got my master's in it, but then I started a career in something totally different, and now I'm looking at doing something a lot more practical because as much as I would love to teach and teach what I want to teach especially, uh, that's not where the money is right now, unfortunately. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by buying my books on Amazon. A lot of them are 99 cents on Kindle. 
Just search for Patrick Attaway. I have short stories, I have poetry, and I also have novels. I've read a lot of it on the podcast, so if you want a preview, it's there for you. I also have music under the name Lurking Vowel. I have a TikTok channel under the name Lurking Vowel, and it's growing in popularity. I have people who are interested in my music who say they like specific songs of mine. It's really interesting because... I spent all these years since 2007 not really getting much uh, in, in terms of positive input from outsiders. Writing and music have always been solitary experiences for me. And this goes back to that group thing. Because on Twitter there was the writing community, which was a big lie. None of that was real. You had cliques that liked each other, that allegedly supported one another, and liked and retweeted each other's posts, but there wasn't a lot of reading of each other's material. And what interests me is that I will see other authors of my ilk, at least in terms of being an indie author, out there promoting their work and some of them get the fuck on my nerves because I know they're not selling anything but they're putting a lot of money into their their ads and their promotion and more power to them for that but I don't want to see it and yet when you're allegedly friends with these people it's just all up in your face and it's rude to distance yourself from that so uh. I was using Reddit to promote a lot of my stuff, but now I can't really use Reddit because some fucky shit has been going on there lately. So now I need to think about something else when I want to publish something in the future, which leads me back to the podcast. I think that I'll probably be doing more writing specifically for the podcast, and I don't see myself doing any novels or... Um, anything outside of maybe publishing poetry. It's just, it's not in the cards right now. All right, let's get into It's Catching. My friend Patsy was telling me a story. So I'm at the movie theater, she said, and I've got my coat all neatly laid out against the back of my seat when this guy comes along. And here I stopped her because I've always wondered about this coat business. When I'm in a theater, I either fold mine in my lap or throw it over my armrest, but Patsy always spreads her out, acting as if the seat back were cold and uh, she couldn't possibly enjoy herself while it was suffering. Why do you do that, I asked, and she looked at me, saying, Germs, silly. Think of all the people who have rested their heads there. Doesn't it just give you the creeps? I admitted that it had never occurred to me. Well, you'd never lie on a hotel bedspread, would you? She asked. And again, why not? I might not put it in my mouth, but to lie back and make a few phone calls? I do it all the time. But you wash the phone first, right? Um, no? Well, that is just dangerous, she said. In a similar vein, I was at grocery store with my sister Lisa and I noticed her pushing the cart with her forearms. What's up? I asked. Oh, she said, you you don't ever want to touch the handle of a grocery cart with your bare hands. These things are crawling with germs. Is it just Americans or does everyone think this way? 
In Paris once, I went to my neighborhood supermarket and saw a man shopping with his cockatiel, which was the size of a teenage eagle, and stood perched on the handle of his cart. I told this to Lisa, and she said, See, there's no telling what foot diseases that bird might have. She had a point, but it's not like everyone takes a cockatiel to the grocery store. A lifetime of shopping, and this was the first exotic bird I'd ever seen browsing the meat counter. The only preventative thing I'd do is wash clothes after buying them at a thrift shop, this after catching crabs from a pair of used pants. I was in my mid-twenties at the time and probably would have itched myself all the way to the bone had a friend not taken me to a drugstore, where I got a bottle of something called Quell. After applying it, I raked through my pubic hair with a special knit comb, and what I came away with was a real eye-opener. These little monsters who'd been feasting for weeks on my flesh. I guess they're what Patsy imagines when she looks at a theater seat. What Lisa sees lurking on the handle of a grocery cart. What's interesting about Sedaris is that he's written about having OCD in the past. I taught his essay Plague of Ticks in my English 1101 course. And a lot of people conflate having OCD and germophobia. And there are various forms of OCD and various forms of germophobia. And so I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And I sometimes say I have germophobia, but it, it doesn't really work out that way. So one of the things that I don't like are potlucks. I don't like a bunch of food from a bunch of different houses that have had a bunch of different hands in them sitting around in the same area and I don't know what they put in that food. I don't know what their house is like. I don't know if they wash their hands. People put a lot of trust into potlucks. And it's different from a buffet because all the food comes from the same place. And restaurants are supposed to be sanitary to a degree. But I don't really eat at buffets much. It's been years since I, I've been to a buffet, actually. I also don't like certain surfaces. I don't like the way certain textures feel. I feel like, you know, I, I think I talked about this in a previous episode. I don't like used clothes because I don't like the idea of wearing something that someone else has worn. Their skin cells and other stuff might still be in the fabric even after it's washed. I know that may not make any sense to you, but... A lot of stuff in thrift stores, for one thing, they all smell the same, and it's a disgusting smell to me. It's all icky and grimy. I want clothes that are brand new because, sure, if you go into a store and you buy a pair of pants, there's a chance that someone tried them on, but they're still technically a new pair, and they don't look worn unless you buy them that way. But even pants that are worn at the factory in terms of having holes ripped in them and stuff. They don't look the same as ones that are authentically worn like you'd find in a thrift sh shop. There are times when I don't even like drinking after my wife and she gets insulted. It just depends on my mood, really. And most of the time when I'm in public, I still wear a mask because I went a year and a half without getting a cold. I stayed inside. I wore a mask when I went out. To me, that alone is worth wearing a mask out in public. They're minor, though, compared to with what Hugh had. 
He was eight years old and living in the Congo when he noticed a red spot on his leg. Nothing huge, a mosquito bite, he figured. The following day, the spot became more painful. And the day after that, he looked down and saw a worm poking out. I'm drinking Coke Zero out of my copper yeti. A few weeks later, the same thing happened to Ma Hamrick, which is what I call Hugh's mother Joan. Her worm was a bit shorter than her son's. Not that the size really matters. If I was a child and saw something creeping out of a hole in my mother's legs, I would march to the nearest orphanage and put myself up for adoption. I would burn all pictures of her, destroy anything that she had ever given me, and start all over again because that is simply disgusting. A dad can be crawling with parasites and somehow it's okay, but on a mom or any woman, really it's unforgivable. Oh, that's sort of chauvinistic of you, don't you think? Ma Hamrick said. She'd come to Paris for Christmas and had Lisa and her husband Bob. The gifts had been opened and she was collecting the used wrapping paper and ironing it flat with her hands. It was just a guinea worm. People got them all the time. She looked toward the kitchen where Hugh was doing something to a goose. Honey, where do you want me to put this paper? Burn it, Hugh said. Oh, but it's so pretty. Are you sure you won't want to use it again? Burn it, Hugh repeated. What's this about a worm? Lisa asked. She was lying on the sofa with a blanket over her, still groggy from her nap. Joan here had a worm living inside her leg, I said, and Ma Hamrick threw a sheet of wrapping paper onto the fire, saying, Oh, I wouldn't call that living. But it was inside of you, Lisa said, and I could see her wheels turning. Have I ever used the toilet after this woman? Have I ever touched her coffee cup or eaten off her plate? How soon can I get tested? Are the hospitals open on Christmas Day, or will I have to wait until tomorrow? It was a long time ago, Joan said. Like, how long? Lisa asked. I don't know, 1968 maybe? My sister nodded the way someone does when she's doing math in her head. Right, she said and I regretted having brought it up. It's interesting that he points out that he has different standards for men and women, and then Ma calls him kind of chauvinistic for it. And the thing is, is that I feel like people kind of have their own sensibilities about other people that aren't necessarily prejudice, but it's just sort of like an ingrained feeling. Like... Let's say hypothetically, and some people would say that this is reductionist, but we're being purely hypothetical here. You might know someone who is purple with blue polka dots. Now, you won't discriminate against them. You won't say, hey, you suck. I hope you die. You don't deserve the same rights as me. You don't say anything like that. But you don't necessarily want to shake their hand, okay? Now, having, you know, I, I don't like shaking anyone's hand anymore, but I've never not wanted to touch someone based on their race or their anything, really. I just don't like touching people or having people touch me. But 
I, I, I kind of feel like we're very, we, we give people a lot of leeway for how they feel with vibes and stuff like, oh, you shouldn't be afraid of being rude because, you know, you have to trust your intuition. You could be, end up murdered or something. But here's the thing. What would you do if someone said, I don't know, I just don't feel comfortable comfortable around black people? That would be weird, wouldn't it? That would be a weird thing to say. It would be kind of a racist thing to say. But what if they got more specific? What if they said they didn't mind being around black people, but they said, I don't like being around black people when they're eating. That would be very, very specific and strange. And I guess kind of a situation that would be easy to avoid if you, you know, don't go to restaurants. But let's get even more specific. This is the the David Sedaris train of thought that I'm trying to follow with, um, I guess because, I mean, I know why he said it, but this is a podcast and we're going to, we're going to unravel a little bit. For instance, when I was younger and I was very young because it was the movie, it was a, an interview with Oprah with the cast of The Hours or whatever with Nicole Kidman. So this was a very long time ago. I was very young. And I, when I was growing up, Nicole Kidman was it, man. She was the hot actress. I mean, I saw her in Batman Forever in 1995. I was three or four years old. And there's a scene where she's got barely anything on and she's touching Batman. I, I discovered my sexuality very quickly thanks to Nicole Kidman and Halle Berry. Halle Berry in the Flintstones movie, I remember watching that movie on VHS for the first time. And something strange was happening to me that I didn't quite understand, but I knew that I liked her. But in this interview with Oprah, she's drinking tea and all of a sudden she just burps and it like cracked my illusion of her because I didn't have an image. Let's face it. I had an illusion of her because we have this thing where we can separate the fact that celebrities and actors and actresses are human. Like we don't think about them on the toilet most of the time, for instance, but they go to the, the toilet they poop just like you and me. They have massive diarrhea just like you and me. Now and then when I'm on the, on the toilet, I think about Tom Cruise handing me some toilet paper and saying, God, that's disgusting. But I understand. I don't know why. And it's not just Tom Cruise. Sometimes I think about other people too. Why are you in the, in the bathroom with me, for God's sakes? That's the question I should be asking. But when people express a notion about someone, a feeling about someone based on their gender or race or even their sexuality, it, it gives you the ick a little bit, doesn't it? I have had a lot of morbid curiosity lately. And I have been listening to the Kimmer show a little bit. It streams live on YouTube, and I've listened to his podcast a little bit. And the reasoning is, when I was growing up, my mother listened to conservative AM radio, but conservative AM radio in the late 90s and th early 1000s, at least until Obama was in office, was a much different sort of thing. 
it got very radicalized starting with the Obama administration and Trump just kind of took everyone for liftoff and now everyone has left for crazy town. But I revisited the Kimmer and now and then I'll just listen in again because I don't know, I hate myself or something because a lot of the shit he's saying is just really nuts. Uh, For some reason, just out of nowhere, he was complaining about how in Hollywood, allegedly straight men can't play gay men anymore. This was just the other day. And my thought is, well, there's no shortage of, this is also something that David Sedaris has said, there's no shortage of gay actors in Hollywood. So why wouldn't you just hire a gay man to play a gay part? You know, if you were casting for a black character, you wouldn't hire a white actor for that role. So if you're writing about someone who's coming from a certain experience, why wouldn't you just hire an actor who's had a similar experience? And it gets really icky when we start talking about race and sexuality at times, because there's always that, that fear that you're going to be appealing to someone that you don't mean to appeal to. Was it, did Chris and I talk about George Carlin in the last episode and how he actually appeals to both sides of the political spectrum because they're able to kind of inwardly bend his intent toward their perspective. So earlier when I said I was giving a hypothetical situation of someone saying that they feel uncomfortable or they don't like being around black people when they eat, which is very specific and odd. There's someone out there who's going to be like, you know, what? I feel the same way. I agree with you. And that's not where I'm coming from. I'm just pulling out shit from my ass. I have never met anyone who's ever said that in my life, but I bet you there's someone out there who's like that and they might listen to this podcast. But one of the things that Kimmer said on one of his latest podcasts was he was complaining about how he thinks that there are sections of black culture who have alienated themselves from the rest of society and they've come up with their own language and all this, that, and the other. And it was all just codified racism. I mean, he may deny, it's not racist to say this, but it is. It's like when white people complain that they're not allowed to say the N-word, but black people are. Actually, you are allowed to say anything you want. What you're not allowed, well... What ends up happening is you get a response for what you say. It's like going into a movie theater and shouting fire. You can't just do that and not expect a response. You can, but you have consequences to face for that. And you have to ask yourself, why would I want to say that? You know, why would you want to go on stage in front of a group of people as a white man and say the N-word, for instance? Why would you want to do that? There's nothing stopping you from saying it in the the privacy of your own home if you want to. You might be a racist for that, depending on the context. But realistically, what you have to be mindful of is that you might be triggering something in someone because you don't know someone else's experience. So it's not just that you're not allowed to say something. It's actually impolite to say certain things. 
It's like I can go up to a woman in a store and just call her a cunt. Like that's not a word that's been thrown off the table. But I wouldn't do that to some random woman because I have nothing to gain from that. And there's only going to be a negative result from it. Now, all of this is just really off the beaten path of what I'm talking about. Because what Sedaris brought up was he would feel that he would feel differently about a woman having a worm inside of her than a man having a woman worm inside her. And I understand what he means. I don't necessarily agree with it, but he's not saying anything incredibly hateful. I think that is where the difference is. I don't feel that he's saying anything necessarily chauvinistic. And what's really telling is that he doesn't get all bent out of shape when she calls him that. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not chauvinistic or I'm not sexist. Because that's usually the the telltale signs when people get defensive. People act like the worst thing that you can say to them is that they're racist or that they're misogynistic. When realistically, if you're not racist or sexist or anything, then someone's not going to just randomly call you racist or sexist. That's not how that works. And someone who isn't prejudiced, if they get called racist or sexist or anything, they're going to be like, oh, I'm sorry. Or they're going to try and have a conversation about it to improve themselves or... They're going to at least try to better understand that person's perspective because, sure, there have been instances when you might say something and you may not actually be racist or sexist. But it's important to listen. And, you know, he doesn't feel like the, the need to have a conversation about it. He doesn't feel the need to have an argument about it. So anyway... When Ma hammocks around, I don't lift a finger. All my chores go automatically to her, and I just sit in a rocker, raising my feet every now and then so she can pass with the vacuum. It's incredibly relaxing, but it doesn't make me look very good, especially if she's doing something strenuous, carrying furniture to the basement, for instance, which, again, was completely her idea. I just mentioned in passing that we rarely use the dresser and that one of these days someone should take it downstairs. I didn't mean her exactly, though at age 76, she's a lot stronger than Hugh gives her credit for. Coming from Kentucky, she's used to a hard day's work. Chopping, totting, and all those activities with a drop G, the way I figured it, and these things are in her genes. I just realized that he meant toting, not totting. It's only a problem when other people are around and they see this slight white-haired woman with sweat running down her her forehead. Lisa and Bob, for instance, who were staying in Patsy's empty apartment. Every night they'd come over for dinner and Ma Hamrick would hang up their coats before ironing the napkins and setting the table. Then she'd serve drinks and head into the kitchen to help Hugh. You really lucked out, Lisa said, sighing as Joan rushed to my empty ashtray. Her mother-in-law had recently moved into an assisted living development, the sort of place that renounced the word seniors and refers to residents as graying tigers. I love Bob's mom to death, but Hughes, my God, and to think that she was eaten by worms. Well, they didn't technically eat her. 
I said. Then what were they living on? Are you telling me they brought their own food? I guess she was right, but what do guinea worms eat? Certainly not fat, or they'd never gone to Joan who weighs 90 pounds tops and can still fit into her prom gown. Not muscle, or she'd never be able to take over my chores. Did they drink blood, drill holes in bone, and sop up the marrow? I meant to ask, but when Ma Hamrick returned to the living room, to the topic immediately turned to cholesterol, Lisa sang, I don't mean to pry, Joan, but what is your level? It was one of those conversations I was destined to be left out on. Not only have I never been tested, I'm not sure what cholesterol actually is. I heard the word, and imagine a pale gray, a pale gravy, sorry, made by hand with lumps in it. Have you tried fish oil, Lisa asked. That brought Bob's level from 380 to 220. Before that, he was on Lipitor. My sister knows the name and corresponding medication for every disease known to man, an impressive feat given she's completely self-taught. Congenital ich... Oh my god. Okay, so I'm studying a lot of these words. I should know what they mean. Uh, Jesus. And I don't even want to... So, congenital ichthyosis, myositis, office, off, uh, that's not a real word, spondylolitis, the thesis, calling for celebrex, flaric, rilxyl, oxycodone, hydrocodylaride. This is the part of the podcast where people are wondering if I'm having a stroke. I joked that she'd never brought a, she'd never bought a magazine in her life, and she reads them for free in doctors' waiting rooms. And she asked what my cholesterol level was. You better see a doctor, Mister, because you're not as young as you think you are. And while you're there, you might as well have those moles looked at. It's nothing I wanted to think about, especially on Christmas with a fire in the fireplace, the apartment smelling of goose. Let's talk about accidents instead. I said. Heard of any good ones? Well, it's not exactly an accident, Lisa said, but did you know that every year 5,000 children are startled to death? It was a difficult concept to grasp, so she threw off her blanket and acted it out. Say a little girl is running down the hall playing in her parents and the dad pops up from behind the corner saying boo or gotcha or whatever. Well, it turns out that child can actually collapse and die. I don't like that one bit, Ma Hamrick said. Well, neither do I, Lisa said. I'm just saying that it happens at least 5,000 times a year. In America or world over, Ma Hammerk asked, and my sister called to her husband in the other room. Bob, are 5,000 children a year startled to death in the United States or in the entire world put together? He didn't answer, so Lisa decided it was just the United States. And those are just the reported cases, she said. A lot of parents probably don't want to own up to it, so their kids' deaths are attributed to something else. Those poor children, Ma Hamrick said. And the parents, Lisa added. Can you imagine? Both groups are tragic, but I was wondering about the surviving children, or even worse, the replacements raised in an atmosphere of preventative sobriety. All right now, Caitlin, too. When we get home, a great many people are going to jump up from behind the furniture and yell happy birthday. I'm telling you now because I don't want you to get too worked up about it. No surprises, no practical jokes, nothing unexpected. But a parent can't control everything. And there's still the outside world to contend with. 
a world of backfiring cars and their human equivalents. Maybe one day you'll look down and see Worm waving its sad, penile head from a hatch it has bored into your leg. If that won't stop your heart, I don't know what will, but Hugh and his mother seem to have survived, thrived even. The hamricks are made of stronger stuff than I am. That's why I let them cook the goose, move the furniture, launder the hideous creatures from my second-hand clothing. If anything were to startle them to death, it would be my offer to pitch in. And so I settle back on the sofa with my sister and wave my coffee cup in the air, signaling for another refill. I think my wife is watching Shameless in the other room. I spent the day playing Tears of the Kingdom while she watched Gossip Girl, and then suddenly it was 6 o'clock. I don't know how that happened, but I didn't wake up until close to 11 today because we stayed up so late because of the movie. What happened was, so we went to the theater in Noonan, and my wife had bought tickets a week in advance. We go inside, we get in our seats, and then all of a sudden, three people come in and say, I'm sorry. Well, the woman in the group says, I'm sorry, but I think you have our seats. And my wife stands up, they look at their apps, they go to the manager's office or the front desk or whatever. And meanwhile, I'm sitting there because I'm like, oh, this will get resolved and uh, I won't have to miss my movie because I've been looking forward to this for so long. I mean... Seeing Michael Keaton as Batman again actually meant a lot to me. I explained to my wife afterwards, there are little things in my life that mean a lot. And it's the little things that I look forward to that keep me going. And so I'd been looking forward to this for a long time. And it was bad enough that this movie got delayed over and over again. But the fact that I was coming to see this, it was... Like I, I, you know, expressed in the novel Greenskin or on my Substack, that seeing a Batman movie in the theater is sort of like going to church for me. And what bothered me was that during this whole fiasco, there was a, supposed to be an empty seat next to mine because we usually buy three seats so we don't have to sit next to anyone. They'd set their nachos in the seat that we'd paid for. The man and the other dude were sitting down, literally stuffing their faces. The, the previews for the movie have not even started. It's the fucking Maria Menounos bullshit before the movie. She gets the fuck on my nerves with her heel squad bullshit. Come listen to my podcast. And then when I'm at the fucking gas pump, she pops up. Did you know that if you put crystals on your feet, you'll levitate and it'll cure all your diseases? Some shit like that. Well, as I'm, you know, wondering when this is going to be resolved, my wife calls me. She says, so... <laughs> and I already knew they've offered us a refund or we can sit up front and we'll only have our two seats. And I don't know about you, but there are very few people who enjoy going to a movie and sitting up front and looking up, craning your neck the whole time. 
It's not a fun experience. It's not the optimal angle to view a movie. So I got out of my seat. I was pissed off, Avi. And, you know, I, I didn't, I, it was not that woman's fault. It was not those people's fault. It was Regal's fault because they had double booked the seats. So we'd bought the tickets in advance. And so had that woman, apparently. So what the manager did was refunded the tickets and then given us three free passes. So, uh, you know, I was fuming. I just wanted to go home at that point. And mind you, I'm a very quiet person when I'm angry. I don't like to talk. I don't like to be bothered. And I have tried to explain this to my wife. Just let me simmer for a while and I'll get over it. Don't poke me. And so we're in the car and she will not let me move. She will not let me start driving home. And after I tell her, just let me go home. And like, I'm starting to like let a little bit of it out as we go along. She says, okay, why don't we go to Douglasville later on? There's a 10:30 showing in IMAX and with the three passes, you know, IMAX tickets cost more. So she only had to pay $6. And honestly, even though the screen is bigger, I don't think it's a real IMAX. The sound is IMAX because it's loud as shit and it does weird things like voices go around the room and gunshots and whatever are really loud and shit. But uh, I don't think that theater is a real IMAX because... I remember going to Fernbank and the fucking screen is as big as the room and it's a huge room. So by the time we got out of this movie, we rushed to our car in the parking lot because it was late and we're at the mall. And then, oh God, I was, I, I, so here's the thing. My wife says it's my anxiety that's getting the better of me, but the other week I was eating at my mother's and suddenly I was having heart palpitations. I was having trouble breathing. I was feeling lightheaded. This, all this lasted like two seconds, but it scared me and I stopped, I had to stop eating and I've had heart palpitations a few times since then. And heart palpitations can be related to anxiety, which I'm no stranger to here lately. And I've also been very bloated and gassy and apparently gas building up in your body can also cause heart, heart palpitations. And then yesterday we were eating barbecue and usually I will eat everything on my plate when we go eat barbecue, but I didn't eat all my barbecue, I didn't eat all my stew, and I definitely barely touched my onion rings. And my body was like, stop. And I wasn't full full, but my body was like, 
you shouldn't eat anymore. And the same thing happened to me when I had those heart palpitations the other week. So, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck's going on with me. I don't want to go to the doctor. And uh, you don't want to go to the doctor and find out nothing's wrong with you because then you feel foolish. And you don't want to go to the doctor and find out something's wrong with you because then you know you have something wrong with you. But, I mean, I've always had these weird anxiety-induced experiences. And this is something that's been going back to, you know, when I was in college. I had trouble sleeping, and when I would get in the bed, I would feel weird. Like, I would have these feel these kind of like heart palpitations. These feelings like I was going to pass out even though I'm laying in bed. And... Just a, it's very difficult to describe, and it makes me panic, and it jolts me awake. What's ironic is that I wouldn't say that I fear death, but I definitely don't like the idea of dying uh, while driving and, you know, taking my wife with me because of an accident, you know. And last night she was playing um, some fucking song by wasn't j cole it was kid was it kid cuddy and like there's a slow tape sound at the end and i was like is that in the song is that in the song and i was freaking out it was like 1 and 30 in the morning i'm tired of shit i don't feel great and she's got the windows down which is makes it very difficult for me to breathe it feels like i'm in a vacuum getting everything sucked out out of me and I like being in an air-conditioned environment, and that helps me breathe best. In a car with the windows down, no thank you. I'm just, I'm also thinking about my cousin who was 33 when he died. He got in the bathtub after work, and his heart just stopped. And a few days later, we were at his memorial service. It's so weird because I wonder like like, uh, apparently if he'd gone to the doctor and gotten checked out it was something that he could have taken medicine for it was something allegedly hereditary that comes from his father's side of the family so not my family and his sister got checked out for it afterwards and she was fine but gosh it's it's really kind of scary as you get older, I think. Because when I was a teenager, when I was in college, I, I didn't give a shit. There were times when I wanted to die. Now I'm not depressed anymore. I, I'm just anxiety ridden. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking on my mother's characteristics. I'm turning into her. Anyway, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. I am done talking. Bye.